Brian Reed, did you read 1,878 pages in Revelation? Well, I was gone. That's okay. I just happened to remember that we might mention something like that. <laughs> Let's go to Hebrews 1 tonight, please. Romans 8, too. I don't want any more reports that Pastor Jeff's message was too hard to understand. He put 200 hours into it. It was not opaque at all. Wonderful message. Leaves room for some more, though, so keep on. A couple of announcements. First, this Wednesday, we are having service. Next Wednesday, we're not. It's the night before some holiday or other. Brats, did you say? I know. Well, get a tape. <laughs> You're going to go deer hunting anyways. Um, ladies' prayer. This is a translucent. Let me see if I can see this. Translucent. Ladies' prayer hour this Sunday, November 24th. And the prayer request box on the tape table. Please note that. Also, the note here says, it is our privilege to stand shoulder to shoulder and shield to shield with you before the throne of grace. That's a good motto for the ladies' prayer. So keep that in mind. We're also continuing to collect new toys for the Salvation Army Treasures for Children campaign. And if you want to participate, drop your donations off at the information table. We're still doing this through Sunday the 8th. And I hope it'll be like one of those things where Moses says, stop. We got enough. We got more than enough. It usually is. Thanks to your generosity, there's a lot of happy kids on Christmas morning. All right. Let's take a couple of moments of silent preparation. We are continuing with DLT. Doing and Living Theology. Tonight, the subject will be the external term. And so, as I said, someone recently said, that was a good series. And I said, it's not over yet. DLT. So, Romans 8, Hebrews 1, and a few moments of silent preparation. Father, what a privilege it is to assemble together. We do this freely. We do this willingly. We do this under no coercion or obligation other than the yoke that is easy and the burden that is light that our Lord Jesus Christ presents to us. And tonight we thank you, Father, that you've given us another opportunity to exercise our responsibility, which is to be prompt to hear slow to speak, slow to anger, teachable and receptive to the word of truth, to the implanted word which is able to save our souls and preserve and deliver them in time as we await the parousia, 
the universal appearance of our Savior Christ Jesus. When every eye will see him, every knee will genuflect, every tongue sing praise and pledge allegiance to him, to your glory, Father. Be glorified tonight then through the word and be glorified through those who are the living epistles upon whom you will write your word, not with ink tonight, but with the spirit of the living God. May we go forward from here being known and read by all people as a gospel, as an epistle of Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. I've talked a lot, including Sunday, about cross-pollination and how our two series are cross-pollinating. And the point at which they're pollinating is this. In God, there are five notions. This is a reiteration of some of the theological principles we've gotten in doing and living theology. In God, there are five notions. The first, God is one. We can fill this out with some scriptural references. Deuteronomy 6.4, listen up Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Therefore, the Lord God we're talking about, the triune God, is identified in the scriptures as the God of Israel. Secondly, in God there are four divine relations. There is paternity. We found that in Ephesians 1.3 as we begin to exegete that digest of Paul's primal epistle called Ephesians. Ephesians 1.3, he's called the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, paternity. There's filiation, that's Hebrews 1.2, God as in these last days spoken in a son. Active and passive spiration, which we'll have to flesh out a little more in the future, and that's why the Holy Spirit is called pneuma or breath, and why when Jesus breathed upon his disciples, he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. With his breath, the Spirit is breathed. John twenty twenty two. This is also something that happened when the Father and the Son eternally breathed. And from their breath proceeded eternal love and the Holy Spirit. On an early occasion, Jesus said to Nicodemus, The wind blows where it pleases. And you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Third notion in God, there are three distinct divine persons defined by those four relations. And so they are persons in relation. That's very important to understand the triune God as persons in relation for the divine persons bring human persons into rapport and fellowship and relationship through redemption, through creation and redemption. So in God, there are three distinct divine persons defined by those relations. Fourth, the fourth notion, in God, there are two internal, eternal processions, divine processions. And that is the Son who proceeds from the Father by eternal generation, and the Spirit, who also is said to proceed from the Father in John fifteen twenty six, but also said to proceed from the throne of God and the Lamb. And God and the Lamb become and are and are forever 
a single originating principle of the spirit. The fifth notion is where we reach a cross-pollination, where the cross between DLT and the doctrine of the mystery coalesce, and that's the external term. The external term is from the two divine missions. So the fifth notion is there are two divine missions which have an appropriate external term. That, again, uses Lonergan's language and applies a lot of the Western theology notions to it. And the external term, that's T-E-R-M, is that which we may call the divine objective with regard to all of created reality, including time, including history. Time itself is a creation of God. And so in God, there are two divine missions which have an appropriate external term. The fifth notion then has an external direction to it, an external direction out from God, and it's a direction which brings all of a procession that is not God but comes from God called creation, brings it into God. So there is what other theologians call a mutual perichoresis. So for tonight, I just want you to know, here is where cross-pollination comes in with the doctrine of the mystery between doing and living theology and the doctrine of the mystery, where our two series, and they're designed to cross-pollinate, where they cross-pollinate is precisely at this external term because the external term to which the divine missions are directed is directly related to what is known as the mystery of God's will in Ephesians 1.9. And therefore, I've decided to do what is called a theological exegesis. It's been known for a century or so that what's needed in the church is not only theology and exegesis, but a blending of the two. There has to be an exegetical theology, but I think even more importantly, there has to be a theological exegesis of Scripture. And so we're going to take on two passages one in the doctrine of the mystery, that's what I call the digest of all of Ephesians, and I call it Paul's primal epistle. It is a pristine account of the gospel of God about his son and how it sweeps up the pagans as well as the Jews in a plan that is astounding. And the verses 1, 3 to 14 of Ephesians is a digest or a summary of that whole primal epistle. So we're doing a theological exegesis where we're stopping on terms like the Father, our Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not leaping over those, but we're stopping on those terms to deal with some in-depth theology because God is intelligible. It's a cop-out when people say, all I've learned from theology is that you can't really know God because he's too big. That's a cop-out. We can know God. He is knowable. He has made himself knowable. He is most knowable through the lens of the cross, through the crucified man, Christ Jesus. He is most knowable through that medium and through that lens. And so it is a cop-out to say, oh, all I get from your series is that God is too big to know. That's Again, that's exactly the attitude not to take. There are analogies. And there are lenses in the scripture that cause us not only to know him, but to hear him, to see him, and even to imitate him. 
God wouldn't say, be imitators of God and be perfect as your heavenly father in the heavens is perfect if it wasn't doable by the impossible possibility of God's grace. God is knowable. He is intelligible. He is, of course, past knowing, but he's also knowable to us. So we do and live theology. Doing theology is what we're doing. Living theology is what we do when we become graced imitators of God, especially with regard to forgiveness. Someone asked, what is the unforgivable sin? And it was something that Phil and I, along with Peter Hyatt, were tossing around this last week. My mind wasn't on that subject, but I was reminded that in Matthew 6.15, if you don't forgive, the Father won't forgive you. The unforgivable sin is simply the refusal to forgive. And so God withholds forgiveness and does so, whether this age or the one to come in that sense. So it's actually a very gracious thing to consider. We'll do more on this. But God causes us to imitate him, and we are imitators of God, most notably in the subject of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, and the Father did. Forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And if we refuse to forgive, we are blaspheming the spirit of grace. That's as simple as it is. It has nothing to do with an eternity in hell. It has nothing to do with God not pardoning us in the ages to come. It has everything to do with the simple experience of what you experience when you don't release the forgiveness that was given to you. There's no living of the spiritual life. There's no experience of the kingdom of God. And that's the way it is. And that's because of grace. So we'll be getting into that a little bit more. Just enough. I like to just salt it just enough to get you thinking. So. The second divine mission, incidentally, may be considered as an extension of the first. The first and second divine mission should be considered together. And they are in tandem and they proceeded in tandem and together. The second divine mission enlists human collaborators in 1 Corinthians 3.9, we are co-laborers together with God. A remarkable and awesome thing. It's really an expression of the impossible possibility of co-laboring together with God. And that is what we do when we imitate him. Second divine mission then enlists human collaborators in that human beings are led and influenced by the Holy Spirit. And they participate in active and passive spiration through sanctifying grace and a graced imitation of God through God's gift of his love. God's gift of his own love is the way that we participate in the fidelity of Jesus Christ and in a graced imitation of God. So it's the divine missions that are directed toward an external objective the external objective is called external precisely because it's not an internal procession in God. It is something out from God that God intends to make perichoretic with himself so that God will be all in all things. And that is, therefore, the external term. And I want to build up to it in several different ways. The divine missions, then, and this is important to understand because we're dealing with identity here. The divine missions are identical with the divine processions, which are identical with the divine persons, which are identical with the divine relations, which are identical with the one 
triune God moving and acting toward an external objective or an external term to use Lonergan's nomenclature. That's where both our series come together because the divine missions are directed to an external term and that external term has everything to do with the mystery of God, which has everything to do with a universal horizon of redemption, but even more importantly with a heart and center of redemption in what we call the law of the cross. All of these may be somewhat unfamiliar to you as I'm putting them to you tonight, but we're moving from obscurity to clarity, which is the best way to gain purchase in the soul of the learners. And so the divine missions are the divine processions, are the divine persons, are the divine relations, is the one triune God moving toward an external objective or an external term to use Lonergan's nomenclature. Don't worry, I'll be giving much more definition to this. That external term is said to be external. Precisely and exactly because it is distinct and different from the internal divine processions. The internal divine processions happened in God. They are eternal processions. They happen in God. And by processions, the Nicene Creed kind of put it this way, true God from true God. True God proceeds from true God. Light from light. This is our message that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. 1 John 1, 5. And if we walk in the light, then the blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses us from all control by the sin that is our enemy. So the external term has to do with a procession from God, something that proceeded from God called creation, something that proceeded from God that is not eternal in itself, nor is it internally in God, but out from God, an external procession from God. In that procession, well, let's say very simply, that external procession that proceeds from God but is not God is creation, called variously in the scriptures, panta, everything, tapanta, the all things, enpasen, the all things. And I'm deliberately not giving away the store here because I want to build up to exactly what that external term is, and you know what it is, and you can figure it out. That external procession is called creation. Creation itself is a procession from God that is not God, but has originated with God. The creation that has proceeded from God is like, I said like, the Son and the Holy Spirit. In that the Son and the Spirit proceed from God the Father. But the creation is entirely unlike the Son and the Spirit. In that the creation proceeded from God but is not God. Moreover, the creation is not only proceeded from the Father. But the creation has proceeded from the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The creation begins and ends with the triune God. 
In contrast to the creation, or to what I like to call all of created reality, including time itself. In contrast to all of created reality, including time, the sun proceeds from God and is God. The sun proceeds from God and is God. The creation proceeds from God and is not God. But God has a perichoretic plan for creation for God to be all in all, for all to be in God and God to be in all, called theosis by the Eastern side of the theological church. The creation begins and ends with the triune God. In contrast, again, to the creation or all created reality, the sun proceeds from God and is God. Again, the Nicene Creed put it rightly, light from light, true God from true God. The Holy Spirit proceeds from God and is God. The creation in its entirety called the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1, also referred to in an unusual way in Ephesians 1.10 and Colossians 1.20, the heavens and the earth, or panta, P-A-N-T-A, or tapanta, that creation has proceeded, and listen carefully to this nuance, it has proceeded and it does proceed. It proceeded and proceeds from God, but is not God. Now, why do I say proceeded and proceeds? Like it proceeded once, but it also proceeds. Because there is a verse in Isaiah 48, 6 to 7, speak, speaking about this. And I would write this down and consider it. Isaiah 48, 6 to 7, God speaks of, quote, hidden things that you have not known that are created now, not long ago. Created now, not long ago. As this message is being proclaimed, there are hidden things that you have not known that are coming out. There are things being created now, connections of verses and passages in the scripture. And this is also aided by what I call MLB. Brian thought I meant Major League Baseball. What I mean is Messick's lenticular bibliology. There are, there are things, connections in the scriptures that come together, correlate, and explode, and something is created right then. An insight is created now, not long ago, now. You were created in Christ Jesus, says Ephesians 2.10. There's a creation that's ongoing. So again, notice that, because it just breaks another box for us. Isaiah 48, 6-7, God speaks of hidden things that you have not known, that are created now, not long ago. Created things proceeded then and proceed presently from God. Is it right then when we pray for someone who has an illness, God create health in them? Create something now that has not been created before. Create a healthy person in that person. Is it wrong to pray that? I don't think so. We have it right here. They are created now. So, I'm going to pray that. I just thought of that. It was created just now, a kind of prayer. So, it proceeded from God, and I love this phrase, and I, it was endearing to me when I read Romans for the first time. 
And when I studied it, Romans 4.17, God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that don't exist. And I like this one. God, all things, tapanta, everything did proceed and does proceed from God. The scripture says, who gives life to all. That's ta. Panta. Tapanta. So, that's 1 Timothy 6.13. All things proceeded and do proceed from God who gives life to all, as 1 Timothy 6.13 puts it. So, it's very important that we observe right now that all things are not only called or brought into existence by God, but that God also gives life to all things that he brings into existence. And I just happen to think of preachers, teachers. When you're preaching and teaching and you're asking God for how to proceed when you preach or teach, pray that your message not only conveys insights, but that in your message, God creates now. God creates now. Insights that were not known before. Otherwise, I can read a theology book and report the theology to you. I've read thousands of pages of theology, Western and Eastern theology, thousands of pages of Moltmann, thousands of pages of Lonergan from two extremes, Protestant and Catholic. I've read thousands of pages of many different theologians. And yet, I leave that behind when I go to write a theology class like tonight. And he may bring in some of those old things and bring in some of those insights and combine Moltmann and Lonergan and combine in a collaboration many of those theologians I've studied and the scriptures that I've studied. And so because God has granted a strength called exegesis and is building a strength called theology, I think the best way to get insights is to do exegetical theology or theological exegesis when we teach and preach, at least when I do. So God, who calls non-existent things into being and makes them beings who are not beings, is God who also makes the dead alive. God's will is not only to bring a universe of proportionate being into mere existence. His will is to make a universe brimming and bristling with eternal life with a created participation of the creature with the uncreated life of the creator. That's God's will. We don't know how much he loves us. We don't know how much love moved this whole thing. Did you know election was God's first act, not creation? When God acted, he acted choosing you, predestinating you to be conformed in the image of his son. He did that long before he created. We'll find that out in Ephesians 1, 4, for example. God's will is to bring about a universe, a proportionate universe, brimming and bristling with eternal life. So Jürgen Moltmann is right when he speaks of, and I don't know where he said it. I know he said it many times. And so I do recall that he was right when he said, and speaks 
of, quote, the new creation of all things for eternal life. The new creation of all things for eternal life. Good phrase. God's will is to make a universe entirely dependent on the creator. And to make that universe alive with his own life. We're approaching here the mystery of God's will. The mystery of God's will. Cross-pollination of these two series. The creation in toto was brought into being out of nothing. And that's one of the great arguments that I think David Bentley Hart makes in his book, That All Shall Be Saved, a well-worth-reading series of meditations. It's tough, but when you get to the heart of it, it's phenomenal. That why would God create a universe out of nothing with the intention of consigning part of it or the most of it to an eternal darkness and gloom and pain and agony? And I think he's right that to consider God this way is to consider a monstrous distortion of who God is and to paint a caricature, a grotesque caricature. Pulpit after pulpit, and I include myself in this in the past, we think we're painting a portrait of God and we're painting a caricature of him. And I think the more we know him, the more we'll be able to portray him in his true essence of love and a justice that is born of his love. So the creation in toto was brought into being out of nothing. The term in is creatio ex nihilo. Creation out of nothing. Creatio ex nihilo. And it's used by theologians to describe this universal phenomenon. Unlike the internal, internal, eternal, divine processions in which God proceeds from God, the Son by eternally begetting, the Spirit by spiration, unlike that, the creation comes into being by a fiat of God who creates it out of nothing and not out of his own substance as consubstantial with himself as the Son proceeded. It is not God proceeding from God. Creation is not God proceeding from God. This lends absurdity to the notion that anyone would call the universe God or God the universe. Once again, creation or the universe, all things, tapanta, is not God proceeding from God. Consequently, it's absurd to refer to the universe as God or to God as the universe. The creation is not God from God, or eternal light from eternal light, in an eternal, internal, divine procession. Rather, tapanta proceeds from God as an external procession, so that that which comes into existence from non-existence is entirely dependent on its creator, For its existence, its sustenance, its continuance, and its destiny. I'll say that again because that's important. 
in a self-understanding, in knowing who you are as a bearer of the image of God. Tapanta proceeds from God as an external procession so that that which comes into existence from non-existence is entirely dependent on its creator for its existence, its sustenance, its continuance, and its destiny. For that, you can refer to Romans 8.28, for example, Colossians 1.16-17, sustenance, Hebrews 1.3, sustenance unto a destiny. The creation in its totality in that sense was, at, as Romans 8.20 says it, and please turn there, the creation in its totality in that sense was subjected to futility. The Hebrew has a phrase for it, to wahu ba bohu, wahu to bahu, wohu, and that is in Genesis chapter 1. It has a phrase of the entire creation in its totality was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but through the will of the one who subjected it. God subjected creation to futility. Tohu wa bohu. He subjected it to futility in and of itself. Not to leave it in a state of futility. In fact, he subjected the creation to futility. And I love the way Paul put it. Not of its own will. Immediately, the will of the creature is eradicated from the plan of God. The creative plan, the predestinative plan, the elective plan, the salvific plan of God involves God's will. And one man's will. And that's the second final Representative of all humankind, Jesus Christ. Sir, sir, sir Jesus. So the creation in its totality was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but through the will of the one who subjected it. That's God's will. In other words, the whole creation was subjected to futility, not from its own free will. Now that you've made us, would you please, we are willing to have you subject us to futility. Nope. The will of him who created it. In the very act and in the very fact of creation, it is clear from the start that the creature's will is not a major factor in the divine plan. Later, the apostle will state unequivocally that election does not depend, quote, does not depend on any human who wills, nor on any human who runs, but on God who shows mercy. I'll show mercy on whomever I will show mercy, and I will show mercy to all. You got a problem with that? That doesn't mean God is Italian. You got a problem with that? You know what I've done here? I've prematurely revealed a battle plan to storm the castle of the human will. The last holdout against God's mystery. The last holdout against the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. 
In any case, the creation was subjected to futility, listen, so that it would be subjected to hope. Hope implies a destiny. In this case, a glorious destiny. For Romans 8, 20 and 21 together, read like this, my translation from Romans. For the creation in its totality was subjected to futility, not willingly, but through the one who subjected it with the hope that the whole of creation will be liberated from its slavery to corruption into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So God subjected the whole thing to futility in itself, but at the same time, he subjected it to hope which is the confident expectation. God has a hope. For God, hope is a certain expectation of his external term being realized. For the Christian who's loaded with the word, hope is a confident expectation. For the person without hope, hope is, I hope so. God created as an act of his own will. God redeems creation as an act of his own will. God's will is the issue in creation. It is the issue in providence, a doctrine that needs to be recuperated and brought back into our time. God's will is the issue in salvation. And I don't mean issue as problem. People said, He has an issue. What they mean is he has a problem. Issue doesn't mean problem. Problem is what we talk about when we talk about something that's problematic. And so someone would say, he has issues. Well, I do too. Out from the heart are the issues of life. Issues of life. Life issuing out of the heart of the person with doctrine. My words are life. They are spirit in life, Jesus said. Issues of life. So when I talk about issues, I mean issues. I don't mean problems. She has issues. Now that means she has problems. Just say she has problems. Okay. Well, language changes. I can't keep up with it. So let's continue to slide in the DMs. Now, why do we assume that the will of us creatures has anything to do with it? Election, for another example, is not a matter of a human who wills or a human being who runs. It's a matter of God who shows mercy. God shows mercy to whomever he chooses to show mercy. As a matter of salvation, he has chosen to show mercy to all of humanity in all of its times, says Romans 11.32. So as a matter of election, he has elected his eternal son, and in him all of humanity derivatively in him. As a matter of providence, God temporarily hardens whom he will also. I will harden whom I will. I will harden... Pharaoh temporarily so that my name and my gospel will go throughout all the earth. 
I will harden Israel after the flesh temporarily and make them enemies of the gospel temporarily until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so they are enemies for your sake, Paul said to the Gentiles, but still beloved for the sake of the patriarchs. And so all Israel will be safe. If I want to harden temporarily Israel so that billions of Gentiles will come in and then I save all of Israel, I can do that, can I? Can God do that? Is that okay? Well, that's what he's done. So we're storming the castle of the human will. What about my free will? Your will isn't even free. It's enslaved to sin and death. It's enslaved to the flesh, capital F-L-E-S-H, and it's only liberated when you know the Son. And then you'll be free indeed. So, and God does the liberating of the will, and we have free will, and we'll always have free will. We'll always have the freedom to choose freely the will of God and be happy about it. That's what freedom is. So then, the truth of our futility is a generator of humility. Something just got created, a proverb. The truth of our futility is a generator of humility. That's a problem. That's an issue. That's a problem for the American in the present time whose glory is in being self-made. I love what the psalmist said. It is not we who have made ourselves, but God who has made us. We are the sheep and the people. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his pasture. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. I did it his way. (laughs) (laughs) Now, it ought to be at least a generator of humility. And this is a problem, too, because if humility isn't generated, then no one enters into the kingdom of God. This also goes for us who are the ministers of the word, heralds of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of a mystery, Romans 16, 25. We ought not to consider ourselves to be competent in ourselves or of ourselves or to consider anything as coming from ourselves. The moment we consider our competence to come from ourselves, we are ineffective ministers of the New Testament. And so we have to turn our pulpit into a stage for entertainment. For example. Someone says, would you like to be a mega pastor? Hell, no. That's called a mayor. I don't want to be a mayor. And that's politician. That's when you get political. And that's when you get, oh, it's just a mess. I'm sure Peter Hyatt considers one of the best days of his life the day when he was defrocked. Because then he could really let the insights go. And so, what is, I love 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Paul said it outright. Our competence is from God. 
So there's good news here. The creation, subject to futility in and of itself, is also subject to hope. Hope is reserved for those who are entirely insufficient in themselves. So there's a problem. Hope is reserved for those who are entirely insufficient in themselves or subject to futility in themselves. and who recognize their sufficiency and their destiny to be of God. Those who are entirely self-sufficient or who think they are, are hopeless. Ephesians 2.12 describes them as without hope, without God in this cosmos, without Christ. What are we doing? We're cross-pollinating between our two series. The last of five notions in God are the divine missions. These missions, again, according to Lonergan's Trinitarian theology, are directed toward an appropriate external term. The appropriate external term is the same as the mystery of God's will, which is to sum up all things in someone, somewhere, sometime. Behold the process of cross-pollination. Now, John Webster, another theologian. Unfortunately, I looked him up and he went to be with the Lord in 2016. Unfortunately for us, because he had a lot more to give perhaps, but not unfortunately to him, he's with the Lord. John Webster, in his paper called One Who Is Son, S-O-N, at the, it was offered at the 2009 St. Andrew's Conference, and I love to get these things because there's one from 2003 or 2006 on John. There's one on Genesis. There's one on Hebrews. And in his paper that he offered in the St. Andrew's Conference on the Epistle of the Hebrews and Christian Theology, he observed the following simple declaration. He said, the Son is beyond comparison with creatures because he is intrinsic to God's eternal identity. Now that's a theological statement. It's pretty good. It's pretty dense. It's pretty full. The son, capital S-O-N, is beyond comparison with creatures because he is intrinsic, intrinsic to God's eternal identity. Now with all of this Christology, we've moved from theology. When we talk about the son, we're talking about Christology. We'll be getting into eschatology and protology. You've probably heard a lot about eschatology, but what about protology? The distinction between protology and eschatology is the key that interprets Hebrews 1. For example, how did Jesus Christ obtain a name that is better than the angels? How did he obtain it? Is that a matter of eschatology or a matter of protology? If it's a matter of protology, we've got the key in our hand for the interpretation of Hebrews. It's not just a matter of eschatology. There is angelology and the superiority of the sun over angels. There is hamartiology, the study of sin. There is anthropology, the study of man as an image bearer of God. There is ecclesiology, the study of the church. And the church isn't what we think the church is. And the church isn't what people who say they are the church think it is. There's demonology. There's satanology. There's bibliology. There's Messick's lenticular bibliology. Save my neck on one subject. I'll get into it sometime with you, perhaps. 
So with all this Christology that we've been concerned with, it has been established that the Son of God is an eternal person. He is one of the three eternal subjects of the triune God. He is the divine relation of filiation that describes his relation to the Father. Together with the Father, he is the originating principle of the Holy Spirit as active spiration. A question arises in the epistle to the Hebrews. If the Son of God is an eternal divine person, then how is it that he, quote, became so much better than the angels? And how is it that he, quote, inherited a name superior to those in Hebrews 1.4? Moreover, why, according to Hebrews 1.5, did God say to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or how is it that God says to his son, I will be his father, or about his son, I will be his father, and he will be my son? These questions will be confronted and hopefully satisfactorily answered by a theological exegesis in DLT of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. DM, Doctrine of the Mystery, Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. And that's are going to be our examples of theological exegesis or exegetical theology in a cross-pollination. So here's a couple of interesting things just to set it up and then I'll close. Hebrews 1 begins with what is known as an exordium kind of a fancy word for introduction, but it's a more precise word for introduction. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. And then it moves into a florigelium or florigelium. That word flowers is in there. It's kind of like a bouquet of flowers, but florigelium has a figurative meaning, 1, 4 to 14, of a series of references to certain scriptural books stacked upon one another. And it says this, and it says this mostly from the Psalms, but one from Second Samuel, one from Second Chronicles. And the, the, it becomes a kind of a bouquet of flowers. And it's a bouquet, a bouquet that sends forth an aroma of life unto life. It's like the garments that Jesus Christ, we think of the garments that he is going to wear when we see him, but... Psalm 45, 7 says that there's an aroma to those garments. They have the smell of certain spices. And there will be the, the smells and the fragrances and the aromas of the heavenly sphere are something we rarely consider, but something that's quite amazing. So exordium, 1, 1 to 3, and florigelium, or gelium, how do you, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, 1, 4 to 14, and then we will be done with that particular branch of Theological exegesis or exegetical theology. So we're going to confront these questions first with the exordium in which the son is indeed announced to be intrinsic to God's eternal identity. Much more is said about the son in those three compact verses. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Then you can possibly stack in a theological class. A lot is said about the Son in those three compact verses called the Exordium. We will see those things unfurl then by a brief theological exegesis. And I mean brief, and I don't mean exhaustive. After the Exordium comes 
of Florigelium, a collection of excerpts, in this case from the scriptures, which the writer has compiled in order to show the superiority of the Son over the angels, even the highest angels called principal angels or principalities. This is a reproof of the idea that was circulating then and the doctrine that the original creation came into being through the agency of angels. This florigelium, most notably from the Psalms, and we're going to hit some Psalms in this, though also deploying Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, is a bouquet which emits a most pleasing fragrance to God, as Philippians 4.18 indicates, and to God himself, and to everyone who's being orientated to God's grace. In our exegesis of Hebrews chapter 1, then, we will confront other categories of systematic theology, and that includes angelology, cosmology, eschatology, and protology. In fact, this exordium is rife with theology, Christology, soteriology, eschatology, and protology, as well as cosmology. The florigelium necessarily confronts us, then, with bibliology. Also, the study of the scriptures. In our Doctrine of the Mystery series, we have taken on a theological exegesis of Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. In our Doing and Living Theology, we will attempt a theological exegesis of Hebrews 1 to 14. These may prove fruitful and their cross-pollination profitable for us. And I think in ways that have not yet been created. Indeed... And if you want to put a creed together, all scripture is divinely spirated, divinely spirated, breathed, and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. Second Timothy 3.16. In fact, perhaps more notably, the scriptures are, quote, able to make us wise with regard to the salvation that is through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. My translation of Second Timothy 3.15. So if one has a keen eye for the scriptures, one would notice that the salvation that is through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus and instruction in righteousness are juxtaposed. They're back to back, shoulder to shoulder in first and second Timothy, rather three fifteen and 16. The scriptures are able to make us wise with respect to the salvation that's through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. And the scriptures are profitable for instruction in righteousness Instruction in righteousness and wisdom with regard to salvation are one and the same thing. They are juxtaposed. And so, our passages selected for exegesis illustrate this juxtaposition. That is, that the scriptures, divinely spirated through holy prophets of God, reveal God as our salvation. Now that's very important. It is important to note, in fact, that a major problem that Hebrews attacks, one of the major problems that Hebrews attacks, and there are various views. Hebrews was written after A.D. 70 to guide a people through the wilderness after being freed from the Egypt of the old Jerusalem I personally believe, and for reasons I will be giving, that this was written to Hebrews before the fall of Jerusalem. 
And there are reasons that have made that very apparent, especially the reason that the most notable of the faith heroes is not Abraham or Moses or Sarah, but a whore named Rahab. And we'll be studying that. Or maybe at least taking a glance at it. She's the key figure in the whole thing. Seems she left the city before it burned. Seems she was placed outside the camp of Israel when she was delivered. Well, we'll see. Anyways, a major problem that Hebrews attacks is the fact that the readership, like today's readership, is inexperienced in the word of righteousness, in the word of righteousness. There are many more things I'd like to say to you about the high priesthood of Christ, etc., the writer says. And the writer is apostolic, incidentally. No one writes like Hebrews wrote without being apostolic in your calling. It's an apostolic sermon or homily and a letter and a discourse. It's a lot of things. I have many things I could say to you, but you are dull of hearing and you are inexperienced, he says, in the word of righteousness. And I'd like to suggest that the word of righteousness that they are inexperienced in is also a problem of the readership of this epistle and of Ephesians even today. And that the word of righteousness in Hebrews 5.13 is not really different from the word of the cross. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, that word, the word of the cross, which then and now is considered foolishness by those who are perishing. And that includes especially Christians who consider the word of the cross and its universal horizon and the universal significance of Jesus Christ crucified to be foolishness. They're perishing. Without this vision that we're presenting to you now, people perish. They remain in a state of uncontrolled slavery to the sin nature. As Craig, Pastor Brown's message brought, they're wild, they go wild. So to show you what I mean in closing, and this will be the closing, by a theological, theological exegesis, I did this to poor Pam the other night, late at night. I said, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickle peppers. <laughs> I did that, didn't I? And of course, that was weird to do. But that's what we call alliteration. It's many words in a sentence having the same consonant that begins the sentences or many consonants. And I saw that in Hebrews because Hebrews 1.1 is palu merus kai palu tropos palai hotheos laleses tois patresen en tois prophetos. So we have polymerus, polytropos, pale, patresen, and prophetes. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickle peppers. The verse is highly alliterative, and there's a reason for alliteration. It gives your it gets your attention. It pops five pi words. Polymeros, in many ways, polytropos through many tropes or metaphors or means. Pali, 
in old times, Patresen, the fathers, Prophetas, the prophets, spoke to the fathers using many tropes and metaphors and many dramatic ways of expressing through dreams, through visions, through night visions, through all the weird things that Ezekiel had to do and that Isaiah had to do and that Jonah had to have happen to him. But in these last days, God has spoken in a son or rightly translated, God has spoken as a son. The subject of this sentence, which runs through verse two, is in the middle of all those popping peas, there is hotheos, God. Theos lagos, theology. The subject of the sentence, which runs through verse two, is God. God spoke through prophets many ways and at many times and many different passages and particulars and partial ways. God, the same God, has spoken in these last days in a son. So the subject of the sentence that runs through verse 2 is God. Already we're doing a theological exegesis. We're not skipping over the most important word in the whole thing. God. Therefore, we're now fully engaged. See it? We are fully engaged in a theological exegesis of Hebrews chapter 1. We've entered into fruitful ground. Oh, there's a minefield too that we got to walk through and avoid. But we've entered into a fruitful field where God will create now. Don't say they're things created of old. I create them now. Insights created now. So that you can walk in the eternal light that's light from light. That you can walk in and know Christ. You can walk in God. Fellowship with God. Be caught up into a fellowship of divine and human persons. Because God is on the move. So is this church. Our viewpoint's always been on the move. It's not static or stayed. It's on the move. It's a dynamic movement. It's going along with God moving and acting and doing until he reaches the fullness of his objective and fills you up with all the fullness of himself. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. And we understand, Father, that we're accepting a challenge from you. And that is a challenge in which you will continue to create right before our eyes. Even as the word is proclaimed, someone can be given and awakened to faith by the Holy Spirit. Right then, you have created something that did not exist before. You have created someone in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ Jesus is to be part of a new creation, a creation that you have made for eternal life. And Father, we thank you. We pray that you will begin to allow us to discover the external term to which your whole triune being is directed an external term that contemplates the mystery of your will that involves all of created reality and loses nothing help us to see it in jesus name